friends and enemies, welcome to the Progress Report. I am your host, Duncan Kinning, recording today here in Amiskwichiwaskaigan, otherwise known as Edmonton, Alberta. So, Jason Kenney and the UCP are flooding the zone with disaster capital legislation that will finally allow me to both shoot a sandhill crane and employ a 13-year-old, maybe to do both at the same time. And Kenny has, uh, just in the past few weeks, brought in laws that have criminalized protest, allowed dark money to wash over municipal elections and referendums, and his piece de resistance, Bill 32, uh, what we're calling the, uh, the union-busting bill. And joining me today to talk about why this union-busting bill is actually really good uh, is Abdul Malik. Abdul, welcome <clears throat> to the You pod. know, companies, Duncan, are like families. Um, and in those families, we don't allow each other to unionize. We, uh, you know, work out our problems like a family should. Exactly. Um, yes. We, this is a union-free zone. Progress Alberta is, is famously non-unionized, and I will never allow a union here. So I'm in favor of Bill 32, you know, actually, when it gets down to it. Yeah. No, um, like, the, I'm Abdul. Uh, uh, I work uh, in and around the labor sector in Edmonton. My views on this podcast are not representative of anyone but my employer or the views of Kino Lefter LLC, um, you know, a registered corporation within the uh, territory of so-called Alberta. Yes, thank you for doing your own intro, Abdul. I'm very grateful, yes. Uh, he's an, a writer and a filmmaker. He's He's been on the podcast before. This is your second appearance, I think. For your third appearance, you get a challenge coin. So um, so just so you know. Hell yeah. Coin check. Coin check. So so you recently wrote a story for us explaining and, and kind of telling the world why you think Bill 32 is actually good. And uh, I think we need to explain why that kind of clickbaity headline exists. So let's get into the details of like bill 32 before we explain why it is good. So what, what is bill 32? I mean, bill 32 is a, a bill introduced by the UCP that effectively um, puts uh, extremely hard limits, for example, on like where you can pick it. Um, that's a huge one. So, uh, you know, in a traditional unionized uh, picket line, you're allowed to stop uh, people who are crossing that picket line for X amount of minutes, right? Um, that's part of the process of like slowing down the work and preventing scabs from, you know, being able to scab effectively, um, among other things, you know, secondary picketing, which was enshrined in a 1990s Supreme Court case, um, RWDSU versus, I'm trying to remember, I think it was the Coca-Cola bottling factory, but uh, don't quote me on that. Okay, I uh, won't. Where they were secondary picketing uh, the homes of their employer, uh, and it did go to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court said, actually, secondary picketing is okay. <laughs> um, but the you know UCP has decided to once again challenge that, um, and in a court decision that they will almost certainly lose because the legal precedent does exist. Um, and uh, more importantly, they pulled uh, one of those incredible. Um, labor platforms that's not even like fully implemented like less labor friendly countries like the u.s which is uh, an opt-in for union dues going to political activity which um as far as i know i've asked again like i work in labor i've asked a bunch of people i know what constitutes political activity have you gotten any information on this yet and their answer was no (laughs) so yeah those are the this is the latest and greatest in kind of union busting technology from uh from the the kind of the ghouls who are in the like the anti-union industry and and legal community 
Yeah, pretty much. It 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 really is like a, a good summation of a bunch of uh, draconian anti labor legislation sort of combined all together um, to achieve this like one effect, which is to cripple labor power in Alberta, Alberta, a province with famously the lowest union density and arguably um, the weakest labor power. Just sort of looking at it holistically uh, for its entire existence, right? Like um, for many years, at least. Uh, which isn't in, to say in that, the modern era, I think we had yeah. like militant unions. I mean, the one big union was a big deal back here, like you know, yeah, like Crozen's Pass and the the coal miners. And I mean, like, don't get me wrong, I'm not denigrating the work that Alberta labor unions have done. Um, no, 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 but the stats are the stats. The, the, the union density stats are the union density stats. Yeah, pretty much. Um, and it's not; it's no fault of their. Well, I mean, it's the fault of labor. I think as a concept that we got this far, but like. You know, the the unions do a lot of good work and they're continuing to do good work. And like union density has largely been on the upswing since the 90s, which is um, extremely promising. Actually, we were ahead of the curve uh, on that uh, as opposed to, you know, there were still declining rates into the early to mid 2000s, whereas Alberta was actually coming way back up for uh, a variety of reasons. But yeah. Hey, hey, so signing on to support this legislation are the kind of usual ghouls you would expect. You had the president and CEO of the Merit Contractors Association standing on his hind legs and congratulating the government of Alberta for, quote, returning balance to employers and their employees through revisions to the Labor Relations Code and Employment Standards Act. And Standards Act. These positive changes send a message to investors and job creators that Alberta is open for business, unquote. Great. I mean, uh... The the sort of myth of Alberta excellence is is really on display here because it's not our labor laws that are keeping people from investing in the province. It's the fact that we're Alberta, right? Like, um, this is one of the things that it's always sort of crucial to remember is the reason Waterloo could never compete with Silicon Valley is because no one wants to live in Waterloo. Um, mm-hmm. And they ended up recruiting a lot of like second and third tier uh, IT and tech people because given the choice between, you know, living in, in beautiful, sunny, uh, you know, San Francisco or Silicon Valley um, or living in a frozen waste suburb of Toronto, um, Waterloo, people picked obviously the first one, right? And it's the same thing with Alberta. Like, you know, we're not competitive with a lot of U.S. states, let alone other provinces um, in terms of like people wanting to just come and live here which I think is like kind of kind of crucial to understanding the future of Alberta's economy is like diversification actually has to come from within, not from attracting outside investors and like building uh, any sort of economy has to be like a, a project that's backed by the government and the state, not a project that's backed by, I don't know, praying Amazon builds an HQ here or something, which is like, no, we're, we're yeah. going to get, we're going to get the, TD, we're, we're going to get TD bank and bank of Nova Scotia and bank of Montreal to, to relocate their headquarters and head offices to Calgary. This is Jason Kenny is, is going to remind them that uh, it, it would be irresponsible for them to do so because of our low corporate taxes. The reason we even had like a tech industry to begin with in Edmonton was because of schools, right? Like it was because, you know, we had the education to support it and then people started businesses here. Uh, in fact, that's a lot of our like homegrown industries. That's a lot of like the Alberta innovate stuff that was developed here was developed by people who, were born, raised, and educated here, not people who moved here to work for, like, you know, fucking Alberta Innovates, right? 
Yeah, I mean, I will bet a substantial amount of money that none of those uh, big five banks will ever move their headquarters to Calgary for one very simple and obvious reason. I mean, you've laid out uh, supplementary reasons, right? Like it's it's cold here and, um, you know, Calgary is not Toronto, especially in the kind of context of Canada. But like uh, those bankers at working at those head offices in Calgary would literally have to wake up at like four in the morning to get to the office for five o'clock, mm-hmm. which is when the markets open on the East coast. Like it's just never going to happen. Yeah. Like the only good thing about the time zone difference here is that I get to watch basketball at 5 PM, right? Like that is that rips. I can come home uh, from the office and pop on a Raptors game. And uh, yeah, you don't have to like eat dinner, wait around like a chump, go to bed at like 11 o'clock. It's like done at seven o'clock. Yeah, exactly. It's great. And then you can just, you know, sort of live out the rest of your night, have a late dinner, you're good to go, right? Um, but uh, yeah, like, you know, I I don't know. There's a lot of, of interesting fallacies within the job creation myth of Alberta. But like, you know, and I'm not saying big corporations don't look at labor laws when they move places. Like, that's the reason we've outsourced, you know, half our manufacturing to East Asia is because um, of the cheaper uh, cost of labor, right? But like, the kind of corporations you're trying to like, you're not asking for a manufacturing sector. You're asking for an enlarged and improved uh, professional sector. Right. Um, And that is a much tougher sell uh, here in Alberta than anything. Um, Like maybe, maybe I'm, I'm saying this like with a immense grain of salt, there would be some credence to this idea of job creation that the UCP is pushing. If, they were like, yeah, you know, we're going to convert all the coal mines into, I don't know, factories to build cheap New Balance or something, right? <laughs> um, which, I mean, even then, I, I have a hard time believing it because our, like, shipping infrastructure isn't even up to par um, in terms of import-export. But, like, uh, you know, maybe that would carry a bit more uh, weight if if that's what they were saying. But they're like, no, we're going to be, uh, you know, Silicon Valley or Toronto or some sort of professional professionalized um, province, which is, you know, it's completely untrue. And everyone knows it's untrue. They know it's untrue, right? Yeah. So, okay, we are going to get to your story, but I do want to kind of sum up some of the other terrible things in in Bill 32. And this bill really is the kind of collection of every single thing that every small business tyrant in Alberta has kind of ever wanted. It is like literally like a wet dream for the CFIB. Um, and then stuff that doesn't have anything to do with unions, it's just, um, you know, they're just fucking with every single worker in Alberta through the labor code, right? So uh, there's a there's a potpourri here, a real uh, bag of shit when it comes to this. But uh, 13 and 14-year-olds can now be hired for some jobs without youth employment permits. Um, and as Jason Kenney famously did a few months back, he's also lowered the minimum wage for people under 18 to $13 an hour. Uh, employers have gained more power to deduct from paychecks, uh, primarily in cases of previous payroll errors. Uh, not at all wage thefty at all. Uh, long shifts or extended uh, work schedules no longer require an urgent or emergency nature. Uh, shift changes no longer require eight hours of rest or 24 hours of notice in all cases. Um uh, the wording of how rest breaks after X hours of work, uh, how are, are de- how those are determined, has now been altered and has put the timing of those breaks more clearly in the employer's control. Shift, shifts of 24 days on no longer require minimum four days off in all cases. Um, yeah, like, uh, it's, it's really bad. Periods, uh, notices of mass layoffs to the minister no longer have requirements that the large, uh, that Im- that are attached to uh, large layoff notices. All mass layoffs is a 50 for more, a 50 or more now have a flat four week notice to the minister. Uh, no notice is required to lay off seasonal workers on mass. Um, yeah, this is a giant 
bag of shit. Anyways, that's that's if you have anything else that you've that that about both Bill 32 that's bad about Bill 32, speak now uh before we get to to your argument. You know, in in between this and reopening the coal mines, like I'm really excited to see you know, faces of soot-faced children um, again, you know, 100 years later, only this time, I don't know, they're wearing khakis um, uh, and New Era hats instead of, you know, uh, burlap sacks or whatever. We um, just got them on Metanical Metanical Turk, <laughs> and I don't know, clicking shit online for us. Yeah, it's going to be great. Like, you know, we this, this uh, bill really is like, the bot farm economy. <laughs> I mean, like we could, we could easily be like the DDoS capital of the fucking world. Um, if we wanted to be with these labor laws, here's hoping Here. an army of people just, you know, commenting on things on Twitter for 10 cents an hour. <laughs> yes. Not a dystopia at all. Okay. So you wrote a piece for us, Abdul, and we've referenced it. Um, but now I think it's time to talk about it. Uh, the title of this or the headline of this piece is Alberta Labor Needs the UCP's Union Busting Bill. The essential thesis of, the, this argue, of, your, of your piece is that Bill 32 is actually good. Why is Bill 32 actually good? After all that shit we just said. I mean, so I want to clarify. Good is a, if this was coming, it is the best thing that could have come. Obviously, the solution would have been Maybe this shouldn't have happened, but um, if it's here, it's actually an incredible opportunity. And I mean, I, I want to hone in on the word opportunity here in terms of why it is good, right? Um, we've had a couple of uh, anti-labor anti, um, bills so far. Bill 21 famously restricted uh, you know collective bargaining power, and Bill 9 sort of delayed arbitration that was intended to be guaranteed by the outgoing government um, regarding wage reopeners for the big three public sector unions, um, HSAA, UNA, and AUPE. Now, both of those bills, while, uh, you know, devious and evil, are largely technocratic in nature, right? It's hard to get people excited about fighting back against a bill like Bill 21, which is, you know, which will have material impact on their lives, but um, not anything tangible. And I think no, that that's no really, one, no one's in the streets for wage arbitration hearings or whatever stuff, wage arbitration stuff that was negotiated in a past contract or whatever. Right? Yeah, exactly. And people are, people were rightfully pissed, but you know, especially given the threat of this government, like my personal estimation of what was on the ground is that, yeah, people are pissed, but you know, the other side of it is perpetual rumors of like mass layoffs in in large public sector, um, large public sectors, right? So if it's a choice between taking a zero or getting laid off, like, why would you want to rock the boat? Um, And, you know, I know all the big unions were, of course, organizing pretty, you know, decent fight back campaigns against it, et cetera, et cetera. But like where Bill 32 might have been like an overplay of the hand is Bill 32 has a materiality to it that can't be ignored. Um, It has a massive impact. It's not, you know... Each of the components of Bill 32 could have been a bill in its own right, right? Um, mm-hmm. But they decided to let's do it all at once, which on top of, you know, the increasing economic precarity we're living under, uh, the threat of a pandemic, the sort of frustration with government response, the anxiety around reopening while cases uh, seem to be going up and up and up worldwide. And, you know, the, the many the hundreds of thousands of people who are now on CERB, um, combined to create an opportunity for 
organizing and fight back that I think the other bills could not and something the Alberta labor movement holistically really needs right now um, is this sort of very material enemy, something that says, actually, no, we're not going to take this because I liked yelling at my boss on a picket line. I liked being able to have this like power to get some wages. And also I liked that my 13 year old kid could not be, um, you know, conscripted into a press gang, you know, to fight, uh, to fight the French during the revolutionary war or whatever. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, like, like these are all things I, I enjoyed having and now those things do not exist. Therefore, uh, I mean, good luck trying to arrest me for, you know, marching on the streets against this fucking bill. Right. Um, uh, and using bill one, obviously to justify that arrest. I mean, the two go hand in hand. Um, but yeah, like that's sort of where I think this has a really great space for, you, you know, unions and workers to, um, and non-unionized workers too, to, to organize and fight back and say, actually, no, you're going to fucking retract this, or we're going to uh, make your life hell for as long as you're in power and we're not going to stop. Right. And there is a capacity for sustained power here. And I think that that, you know, as I said in the piece, I think that that starts with framing, framing the conversation on bill 32 as uh, you know, not as an attack or a threat, but as an opportunity for workers to demonstrate the power they've always had. Uh, you know, very often we uh, play workers as victims. We portray workers as under threat when really it 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 should be and it always has been workers doing the threatening, right? Like this bill is not an attack on workers. It's a response to the perception of worker power and ways to try and cripple that, um, which is again, it, it's crucial to understand these bills are not attacks. They're responses to an understanding that there is a power imbalance and, you know, the UCP will do whatever it can to say, uh, to suggest that they have the power, but they understand more than anyone, uh, as evidenced by these and other bills, that they actually have very little power at all, right? Um, workers have the power and they're trying to mitigate and cripple that and create this sort of perception that, Actually, no, it's us. It's us. We we exert complete control. But, you know, there's you know, 500 workers, you know, to every boss, let's say. I made that statistic up, but I'm pretty sure it's somewhat accurate. But you get what I'm saying, right? Yeah, like now is the time to kind of really fully internalize the line from Solidity Forever, right? Without our brain and muscle, not a single wheel can turn. Like if, if the labor movement actually decides to to fuck shit up and to get on the streets and to like actually wildcat and strike like labor law is irrelevant right the the what happens to society when labor decides to withdraw uh from the workforce is is cataclysmic <laughs> and uh and and it's really a case of actually putting in the organizing work to make that situation a reality right yeah and like I, it's important to recognize that laws are only as good as their capacity to be enforced right um which is why you know, in the social uprising in the U.S. in the last couple of months and their response to, you know, police, um, you see what happens when 10,000 people get into a street and start fucking shit up, right? Is like, what what effective state response exists to that? Nothing. You could roll tanks into Atlanta and people won't stop, right? Um, even in the White House, right? Hey, Trump, you can't do this. It's illegal. He's like, okay, I'll do it anyway. And everyone's like, Oh, I guess we have to let you do it now. I don't know. There's no precedent for you just not complying with a law, right? Um, 
and and both of those things are actually very good evidence of the fact that you know laws are pretty toothless if you play your cards right you know what you're doing or you just have the numbers to back up the fact that you're not going to accept this law um yeah. i mean i think the other reason why it's an opportunity too is is something that people have talked about in regards to the kind of uh, black lives matter and police brutality uprisings across the united states which is simply the kind of like geographic availability of humans at the moment right with with so many people out of work or underemployed or working from home or whatever that when something like this crops up that like it is just simply easier to get people into the streets in a time like this than it would be if um you know they weren't already in this fucked up pandemic situation right yeah and i mean like that's uh this is like sounds like a bit you know woo woo or whatever but like if the u.s if if you know um george floyd had been killed by cops i think a month later than when it happened uh the u.s might not be a functional state right now like we are in a space where precarity is climbing uh people are getting sicker and sicker due to covid um and also heat right like heat generates social unrest that's uh, you've, you've got a thesis on this isn't it the, the like the hotter the weather oh, not, the, like not the not the fucking solar flare theory that's bullshit <laughs> but like civil unrest is is definitely has an uptick in the summertime because of heat right like there is a a relationship to and probably geographic heat. availability as yeah. well right people are just outside of their houses more often or more willing to be outside of their houses right absolutely and like you know there's something about temperature that that does affect our cognitive function right? Like it, it does affect our, our sort of emotional response to things, um, as we all know, um, and stuff like that. So I mean, like, yeah, it is a great time for, for this to be happening sort of in general. Um, and it's one of those things that's like fairly inexplicable. Like everyone knew this bill was coming. Um, there, you know, there's a single person uh, involved in any capacity with labor who didn't get rumblings that this was on its way. Um, I think the severity of it threw a lot of people off guard. I think a lot of people had um, panicked and reactive and tepid responses to it uh, to sort of kick off um, and stuff like that. But I think that the the understanding that this is, again, it is the most material bill they could have introduced. It is the one that has the most profound impact on people's material conditions, on people's ability to fight for better material conditions, on people's ability to raise families and take care of their kids and be able to, you know, live a life that's divested from the exploitation of their labor. Um, And I, I'm genuinely of the opinion that if the organizing goes right, people won't take this lying down and we, we have to stop seeing these things as attacks. They're, they are not attacks. They are responses to a perception of increasing labor power. And it's entirely up to labor. And I'm not saying organized labor. I'm saying the labor workforce, the, sort of labor uh, comprehensively to understand that that you know these things are are defenses uh, and bulwarks against the power that you as a worker hold um and therefore you have the capacity to make sure this never happens right uh, like the yeah. framing of of workers as victims mm-hmm. is really poor because it's it entirely feeds into this perception that workers must perpetually be on the back foot which no they should be the ones you know, striking preemptively against uh, bills like 32. 
Yeah, like there was a, an article re- recently written by Nick Dreger at organizing.work, which kind of talked about the this these perceptions that unions have of the workers, right? And that like back when the labor movement was, you know, kicking ass and taking names and more and was was super organized and winning you know, foundational fights for labor rights, eight hour workday and all that shit in the twenties and thirties. And before that workers were represented as kind of like strong and massive and powerful. And the bosses were kind of these like, you know, round dumpy losers and top hats. And now in modern day, you know, 80 some years later, unions are kind of framing their members as, you know, beaten down and, and, you know, put upon and victims of the boss as opposed to the ones who should be just putting the boots to their boss, right? Absolutely. And I mean, I think that, you know, sort of in general, um, we've, we've, this is coming out of a place of like unions um, comprehensively identifying themselves as part of institutional power. Um, because, you know, in the institutionalization of unions past the IWW, whatever, whatever, they became a part of institutional power, right? Um, especially in the U.S., which, of course, trickles into Canada, you know, labor, well, actually, it's 100% as part of uh, Canada, because, like, you know, labor unions' relationships with the NDP, for example, or labor union um, labor unions being a key factor in the Democratic Party, both in terms of donors and um, volunteers uh, and stuff like that, is really crucial to think about where, where labor sort of sees itself as uh, within the house of, of institutional liberal democratic power when in all honesty, they were never really at the table to begin with. <laughs> they just hitched their horse to um, the best, uh, the best possible people to keep perpetuating them. And that is sort of where this idea of being under attack comes from because it, you perceive it as an attack on like, you know, the institution you think you're a part of when like it's in labor's best interest to identify it it's, itself as like separate from those institutions. In fact, labor's ultimate goal um, is to, should be to hold institutions of power accountable and emancipate people from those institutions, right? Like that is the functional goal of an effective labor movement is, uh, is to like break uh, the illusion that those institutions have any control um, or have the have the like would even dare to um, to make people's lives worse, and and that's one of the reasons. Like you know, in the 1920s and 30s, the crackdown on labor unions was so intense, right? So um, incredibly violent and brutal. Yeah, and and I I think we're in a we're in a space now where um, you know under uh, a, I would say a pretty resurgent labor movement. It's obviously not where it was at. It won't be for a long time, but like where you're able to start framing labor that way again, right? Where you have a hundred years of history to look back at and say, okay, this is a, an ongoing war and we've lost a few fights, but what's going to be our Gettysburg, right? And I think that that, you should always be thinking about what that hill is, what that space is, where you're going to, to sort of lay that line, how you're going to win that fight um, rather than, you know, perceiving yourself as, you know, under siege because you know we've always been under siege. It's not a particularly new concept. Like, if, no one should pretend to be outraged or surprised by Bill Thirty Two. It's it was inevitability. It's not a a particularly fresh uh, set of political ideas on the UCP's part, right? Yes, exactly. And and uh, you know the, the piece is really good. I, I we will link to it in the show notes and definitely give it a read. It is it is a. Uh, 
you know, uh, some analysis and some opinion you're not going to get anywhere else. And, and you've thought about this in a way that I think is refreshing and new. And there's just one kind of final quote I want to read out from your piece that I want to reflect on before we move on to the next thing. And that is this quote, I'll bet that this bill will never be respected. It'll lose on the streets before it loses in court. It'll lose to the people marching on mass, mobilizing outside workplaces and standing before their employers, homes and offices by the hundreds or thousands looking down the UCP's proverbial faces saying, come get us fuckers. I dare you. Unquote. Good luck. Good luck arresting 5,000 workers on the street. I mean, like, like best of luck to you. Uh, you know, this is where, sol- and I will say this is where solidarity unionism is the most important, right? Like you have, and we saw it in Regina at the co-op line. Um, we're going to see it everywhere else. But, you know, if you have a site, uh, say a private healthcare site of, of 25 people that goes on strike and decides to not comply with bill 32 um the the you know you can you can arrest 25 people and you can say hey this is now an illegal strike because of blah 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 you know you didn't comply but you get 500 people out on the on the line and support you get a thousand people on the line support a that strike will be over very quickly i mean it doesn't matter if they're all workers there or not uh but b like good luck uh you know the ucp good luck sending cops to uh to bust it right good luck uh you know winning in the court of public opinion good luck um you know trying to disentangle the optics of laying off you know 25 workers at an old folks home and good luck you know um you know somehow uh you know declaring the union illegal if they're still going to show up day after day you know with a thousand of their best friends being Actually, no, fuck you. Give us our jobs back, right? Like, these are all, I think, vital things to consider because, you know, it's it, it, laws are not are not some sort of immutable, hallowed object. They are as transient and as, like, and as temporary as a fucking ice sculpture. You know what I mean? Like, they exist and then they don't exist. And, like, it's up to you to, like, take the axe to them or not. Mm-hmm. Agreed. And, uh, again, go and read the piece. The title is... Uh... Uh, opinion alberta labor needs the ucp's union busting bill it's on the progress report.ca and it'll be in the show notes okay uh the other big thing i wanted to talk about on the pod was uh i've really gone down the rabbit hole on this issue um uh late last week i wrote a piece uh with the headline uh somewhat cheeky headline being ukrainian youth unity complexes uh, Ukrainian youth unity complex denies that statue they have of a Nazi collaborator war criminal is a Nazi collaborator war criminal. And so we've talked about this on the pod before. Um, and if you're not familiar with it, I'll give you kind of a very quick pre but um, essentially the Ukrainian youth unity complex in North Edmonton has the statue of a man named Roman Shukevich outside of it. This is a man uh, who was trained by the Nazis and uh, he was a military commander under the Nazis and military command uh, units under his control massacred between 10 to 15,000 uh, Jews in various kind of pogroms and massacres, as well as uh, 10, somewhere between 50 and a hundred thousand Poles. Uh, yeah, he's a, he was a Nazi collaborator war criminal. That is an accurate description of him. And uh, so there you go. You're all kind of caught up on who this guy is. And, Okay, so <laughs> writing this story was interesting because I kind of reached out to the people who have this statue, and they're like, uh, I, got, I got a quote 
from B'nai B'rith and B'nai B'rith, uh, which is not an organization that I'm typically a fan of, uh, their manager of public affairs for Alberta is, is actually working on this issue and is, um, you know, you can read the quotes in the piece. He's taken quite a strong stand against the fact that this statue exists. And his solution that he's asking for is, you know, he's looking for some kind of type of acknowledgement that this man massacred tens and 10, 15,000 Jews. But all that the response that you get out of the kind of Ukrainian organizations that are responsible for this are, this is all Russian disinformation, Skaya. This is and this is all an op. It's so fucked because, like, and I, I'm going to preface this by saying I'm a I'm, I do believe the Holodomor happened, right? Like, I'm, but this is the same. Um, this is the same argument that people who engage in like Holodomor denialism say about about the Holodomor, right? Oh, it was Nazi propaganda. Um, is is what they say about uh about that stuff right and why they use that as like to lay claim to like oh this didn't happen or whatever um and and you're engaging in, in literally the same behavior about the holocaust here by saying oh this is this is soviet communist propaganda right which is um like a it, it takes like a special kind of like lack of awareness to see you know the behavior you're engaging in but also it's like historically cited pretty intensely. Like there isn't really an iota of, of, of disinformation about the fact that this guy was a massive piece of shit, right? No, multiple like disinterested academic sources have kind of done the work and it's it's pretty accepted scholarship that Roman Shukovich was r- responsible for these massacres and that uh, units under his control killed all these people. Um and yeah, like the the kind of furious posting and responses by kind of far right Ukrainian nationalists on this issue are are you're never going to convince them. It's like it's all an op to them. You know, this guy is a hero. But it, it's also worth considering how the statue got here in the first place. And and uh, like there have been multiple waves of Ukrainian settlement in Alberta, right? Like there were there was a wave of Ukrainian settlement before, like while well, the Habsburg Empire still existed, like pre World War One. And uh, I mean, the people who kind of came then uh, obviously are not part of this uh, wave of kind of like ultra far right Ukrainian nationalists. This is the like way there was there was a settlement post World War One. There was a settlement, sorry, pre World War One, post World War One, and then post World War Two. And this post World War Two wave of of settlement from uh, Ukraine, uh, the anti-communists were very much favored <laughs> when they showed up on our shores. And uh, the funny thing about kind of virulent anti-communists is um, that they tended to uh, have collaborated with the Nazis. Yeah. And I mean, like, you know, history, like history in general, I would, I would argue has not been kind to the region of Ukraine. Um <laughs> you know, in general, and it, it's led to an immense amount of like, you know, sort of reactionary tendencies within the, the country itself, you know, even up to today, right? Like, like Ukraine has a, a incredibly effective and well-mobilized, um, extremely far-right party that I believe is one of the major parties in their, uh, in their, uh, legislative process and stuff like that. Um, so, I have no idea, but but but, yeah. but it would surprise me considering the the people they have over here in Canada helping them. Yeah, and this is the and this is sort of the the outcome of that sort of like reactionary history, right? Like, I think it's important to recognize why um, these sort of reactionary elements exist out of a out of a historical perspective, and to understand that they don't happen in a vacuum. But that doesn't change the fact that you know you sort of have to have to you know 
acknowledge within your own sort of fold that there are many fascists and Nazi collaborators, right? That's not an indictment of Ukrainians um, at all, not even in the slightest. That is an indictment of many, many people within that that country and many people who came here who had those ties and were honestly fairly unapologetic about those ties, right? Um, and again, it's the same thing that that far right nationalists love to do with like people like Muslims is like, oh, I get that you're not a, a terrorist, but you should acknowledge that there are you know lots <laughs> of Muslim terrorists, right? And it's like, motherfucker, like you know you you have to you have to hold yourself accountable to the same stripe. Obviously, you know with the mental gymnastics involved, they won't. Um, but that's why you know you have to come in write an article doing it for them, right? Yeah. Like just to give you a sense of the scale of kind of like former Nazi collaborator, like, like soldiers who, who showed up this, uh, these quotes are from uh, a book called long distance nationalism, Ukrainian monuments and historical memory in multicultural Canada. This is a chapter in a book, uh, written by Per Rudlin, who again is that uh, Swedish professor of history. Uh, here it is a significant group consisted of former combatants of its paramilitary wing, the Ukrainian Insurgent Army, known under its Ukrainian acronym UPA. In 1950, the Ukrainian nationalist community grew further as Canada admitted 1,200 to 2,000 veterans of the 14th Waffen Grenadier Division of the SS. As Incredible. Only, <laughs> right? As only a cross-section of the veterans were subjected to, to security screening, which was sketchy and incomplete, recurrent allegations of war criminals amongst them triggered intensive discussions. This is like, there's citations for this, which you can go Sorry, and click. What, what year was this? Uh, these uh, were between 1947 and 1951. Oh, in 1951. No, sorry. In 1950, the Ukrainian nationalist, nationalist community grew further. But like the numbers are, I mean, like, here you go. This is um, another quote from this uh, pair Rudling um, uh, scholarship on this. Uh, In the immediate post-war years, Canada received 165,000 political refugees, otherwise called displaced persons. Anti-communist applicants were favored over others. Poles and Ukrainians constituted 39% of this group. As a total of 25,772 refugees of Ukrainian origin arrived in Canada between 1947 and 1951 through the efforts of the International Refugee Organization. Followers of Stepan Bandera, the leader of the radical wing of the far-right organization of Ukrainian nationalists, constituted the largest the largest political party supported by 75 to 80 percent of the west ukrainian displaced persons and that's and then we get to the quote about how the 1200 to 2000 veterans of the s of the ukrainian ss division showed up in canada you know it's fucking wild because like you know how many jewish refugees did canada turn around turn uh, turn back like you know the uh none is the, too many baby yeah yeah the ms st louis in like 39 which you know like what, what was it called the the ship of the damned or whatever mm-hmm. um yeah. that that carried you know about a thousand uh, jewish refugees fleeing a uh, persecution from the nazis was turned back by canada and what year did they apologize let's just google 2018 <laughs> um yeah i mean yeah, there's like, a very good book on this called none is too many canada and the jews of europe um which goes into detail about both, uh, you know, Mackenzie King's, you know, racist and anti-Semitic immigration policies, as well as the specific incident that you're talking about, the MS St. Louis. Um, yeah, and uh, uh, 
during the 12-year period of Nazi rule here, I pulled up the Canadian Council for Refugees stat. Uh, Canada admitted less than 5,000 Jewish refugees. <laughs> um, so, you know, it's it's it says a lot about, I think, our also our own country's history and stuff like that. Like, we, you know, we weren't Argentina, but um, there was, you know, this... And, and anti-Semitism is coded in Alberta's history as well, right? Like, we... We had, uh, you know, a major political party that ruled for a very long time for the conservatives. That was oh, the Social like, Credit Party was the most anti-Semitic political party probably to have ever existed in Canada. Yeah, absolutely, right. That was that was one of those one of those things that's just like, you know, it's it's important to understand the historical context of this monument because I think it says so much about Canada holistically um, and does a lot in sort of deconstructing Canadian myth. Um, particularly in our like you know popular conception as a piece of love peace and love country, which you know everyone listening to this knows is a lie. Um, but you know something like this becomes a flashpoint for I think a much larger conversation about um, what Alberta, you know, what Alberta and what Canada actually is, right? I mean, you go down, I mean, that that does lead directly into the hilarious, like the next thing that kind of related to this that got dug up, which relates to the joke of Canada just being three resource companies in a trench coat. But this came out at roughly this just in the past week or so of some investigative journalism done back in the 90s. Uh, the headline of this 1995 Sudbury Examiner piece is, Inco imported ex-Nazis, RCMP report says. This uh, this was in the Sudbury Star, investigative reporter Terry Pender and another journalist, uh, Peter Vronsky, um, discovered some smoking gun documents that revealed the process of how a little-known U.S. finance group in Canada called the Canadian Christian Council for the Resettlement of Refugees privately lobbied the Canadian government in the 1950s to admit former Nazi Waffen, Nazi Waffen, SS, Nazi Waffen SS foreign legion volunteers like the Muslim by bosnian albanian nazi ss troopers ukrainian ss volunteers and others to come to sudbury wholesale to work in the mines in august 1961 these former nazi troops now employed in the mining industry were mobilized to riot by inco in a campaign to destroy canada's largest independent union the mine mill and smelter workers which was being taken over by an american union the steelworkers it was thought by the U.S. strategically vital to ensure that Sudbury nickel mining was controlled by a U.S. union rather than an independent Canadian commie union. <laughs> Most of the U.S.'s strategic nickel necessary for the construction of warships, artillery, armored vehicles, and nuclear weapons comes from Sudbury, Ontario. And there was a fear that an independent Canadian union might interfere in the nickel supply to the American military. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, it's it's capitalism all the way down, you know, and, and I think... Again, it's nothing new. It's like, that's the part about this I think I find the most frustrating is that none of this is like a particularly new or shocking or as, you know, as yet unheard of um, revelation. You know what I mean? It's just like, man, this sucks, <laughs> right? Like every, it, it just, it fucking you're, Yeah, sucks, you're, you're kind right? of dimly, yeah. you're, you're, I mean, if you're a leftist, you're probably kind of dimly aware that this exists, but like you start reading the details and you kind of understand the this like the enormity and how how much they've penetrated society like peter saverin who was the the president of the tories here in alberta the progressive conservative party for many years he was the chancellor of the university of alberta he was the chair of the organization that uh, essentially fundraised to build a a war memorial monument to this like 14th waffen ss ukrainian division like 
this this guy is by any stretch of the imagination a member of the elite, a member of you know the Canadian upper crust society, and he is deeply embedded in this Ukrainian far right nationalist movement, and uh, and even Christian Freeland. I mean, uh, if she succeeds, um, Justin Trudeau. I mean, I think we are going to have very many a lot of very interesting conversations about her Nazi collaborator grandpa. And this is like something that that ties back into, you know, sort of the idea of people power as well, like institutional power won't, um, you know, unless under extreme duress, which doesn't really apply to this, because I believe that monument is technically on private property. Um, You know, like, like, we'll not ever do these things for you, right? It's up to you to do it for yourself and, you know, organize for it. Um, And nowhere is that more clear when it comes down to like, you know, challenging, um, so to speak, uh, challenging Nazi monuments, uh, you know, in your city or, you know, holding people accountable to, you know, uh, you know, their history of, of, for example, Nazi collaboration or, you know, maybe letting, uh, you know, SS members into the country while turning away a ship full of, you know, 900 itinerant Jews and stuff like that. Um, all in all, just like a very, it's just, it's a very frustrating thing to witness. And it's just like, man, this again, this sucks. Cause like it, it takes nothing to just acknowledge that these things happened. Right. Even if you do not currently self-identify as a Nazi, it's not a particularly difficult thing to say. Grandpa was a Nazi. Yes. You know? Yeah. My ancestors were bad people. Like, Yeah. We live in a settler state. It's not a difficult thing to acknowledge, you know, you know, you might be a woke settler, you know, who's pro decolonization, but you know, Gramps wasn't. In fact, Gramps might have been extremely uh, racist, right? Oh yeah, my my grandparents and great grandparents and great great grandparents definitely benefited from free land on the prairies and uh, throughout North America given to white settlers. Like it's that's that's not even disputable, and not dis- even disputable for you know a huge chunk <laughs> of settlers here in Canada. But there, I've got two final thoughts on this. Uh, one is that if you want to get further down the rabbit hole on this, there, uh, we've got lots of links in the uh, in the show notes. Um, but there's this recent piece that came out by a person named Moss Robeson, and the headline is how a network of Ukrainian ultranationalists penetrated Canada's Conservative Party to lobby for military conflict. And it really does go into the kind of really in quite exacting detail just how deeply enmeshed and embedded uh, these Ukrainian far right, far right nationalists are with the Conservative Party and particularly with Stephen Harper, who they fucking love. Uh, and uh, and so that's a that's a good piece. And finally, um, I, have you, I don't know if you've had a chance to read the Jakarta Method yet, Abdul, but or if you're familiar with its kind of general thesis. Yep. And, and for folks who haven't read it, it's like uh, essentially <laughs> Indonesia had uh, essentially a genocide or mass massacre of around a million or so communists or suspected communists, and they rounded up another million people and put them in concentration camps. And this was essentially the reason why um, the most popular, one of the most popular and most kind of like effective communist parties in the world, the Indonesian Communist Party was defeated. They essentially just disappeared all of their political enemies into the river. And this Jakarta method kind of is part of this broad kind of like uh, anti-communist international uh, group. And I just wonder where the Ukrainian Nazi collaborators fit into that. Do they, do they go to the same meetings? Do they go to the same parties? Do they know 
were they familiar with the Jakarta method when it was happening? I just have so many questions like now that we, I'm kind of aware of this and there is this organization called the like anti-Bolshevik uh, like kind of union or, or group of nations. Or I can't remember the exact title, but was essentially one of the like most uh, virulent anti-communist and pro-Nazi kind of groups post-World War II. <laughs> and I just want to dig into them and their in both in, involvement in Canada and their involvement in these other kind of anti-communist movements worldwide. Yeah, I mean, like, overall, you know, um, sort of Canada's relationship and our, our intelligence agency's relationship to, uh, you know, CIA-backed coups and stuff like that across the across the world is, you know, pitifully underestimated and I think under, under examined because Canada was definitely a player in the cold war, uh, to no small degree. Um, I haven't read the Jakarta method yet. I know what the book is about, but you know, good companion to the book from what I understand are, are films like the act of killing, um, you know, and the look of silence, which are two companion documentaries, uh, that came out a couple of years ago about, uh, sort of uh, the Indonesian, um, I would I would call it a genocide, right? Um, in terms of how many people were were disappeared and very specifically which ones and stuff like that, um, that are are worth examining to understand the fucking sheer scale of brutality. Um, but then, additional to that, like you know, look at the the quote unquote failure of socialist projects in the Middle East and Africa, right? Um, the sort of uh, hard tipping point it wasn't gladio but it was gladio adjacent um downfall of of the turkish uh, socialists right um and uh, also what's happening in like uh, kurdistan right now right um it's it's a very particular kind of, of organizational uh, doctrine that uh, you know seeks to create the end of history which is you know at this point should be acknowledged to be like a fallacy that will never exist um, and and also acknowledge the bedfellows that we've made along the way, right? Both good and bad, because like to to sort of decode the relationships between various factions, you know, at certain points the CIA was collaborating with one left faction against another left faction, stuff like that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, specifically to sort of continually disenfranchise uh, sort of the global left movement as a whole and stuff like it's very worth looking at. Um, And again, relating back to the idea that, uh, you know, sometimes you don't need a surreptitious movement that organizes on signals. Sometimes you just need numbers on the fucking streets, right? Like, we also don't have to overcomplicate, you know, insurrection in our liberal democracy to uh, that kind of degree. Um, Sometimes it's it's useful. Uh, I would argue in the case of like, you know, tearing down the the mechanisms of state, it's probably not. Yeah. And I think kind of one final thought I have on this is that like when, when kind of idiot normie liberals say, you know, socialism or anarchism has never worked. It's like, uh, I mean, yeah. When you look at Indonesia, they had to disappear a million people, put another million people in concentration camps to make sure that the most popular political party in Indonesia didn't win the election. You know, like we're talking about, we're talking about six inch, uh six inch pools of blood in like on like rooftops and stuff like that right like when we're talking about indonesia we are talking about uh a system that actually rewarded people like you know uh people who carried out the executions as um heroes right they 
I don't know if you've seen video of the Indonesian like youth league and they're like, you know, oh, it's, it's psycho stuff. You can't even talk about like the genocide in like any way in Indonesia, like with any amount of truth. Right? Well, you can, you can talk about it, but you can only talk about it from the perspective of it was good that we killed them. Right. Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> like that, that makes up the rhetoric. And like, you know, my, I have a lot of family who's done a lot of work and, and, you know, is very involved with like Indonesia and stuff like that. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's not a bad country. You know, I, I will say like people there are just, you know, very kind and living their lives and making the best of, you know, the sort of position in the global South they've been given. Right. Um, but ultimately what you're looking at is a, is a, is an outcome of a state that, you know, was usurped by a global capitalist project in the most ultra violent way in order to serve a function as like a cheap base of like labor and manufacturing um, rather than a nation that could conceivably stand on its own as like a sovereign power against, I don't know, the encroaching power of, of the U.S. and global capitalism, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, we could talk about this for a long time, but like Sukarno and the non-aligned nations and what was up there before it all got taken away by kind of the CIA and collaborating with the army and the coup there. Anyways, I, there is a, a final thing I want to talk about real fast, just the kind of the abolishing the police update. Um, just a few, I just kind of want to run through the headlines and I have a final thing that involves us. So uh, as you may have seen, this latest police brutality incident in Edmonton is extremely fucked. Uh, six cops rolled up on um, a person of color in a downtown Max or Circle K and beat the shit out of him, spitbagged him, hogtied him, and dragged him out of there, all for the crime of having his license plate stolen. Uh, and then they also arrested the guy who filmed it. Um, just the latest incident of Edmonton police being um, um, shitty and needing to be abolished. Uh, we just recently put out a piece by an ex-cop who says that uh, cameras don't do shit to stop uh, racism, systemic racism or police brutality, and that any kind of police chief or police force talking about cameras as any kind of meaningful reform just needs to be ignored and you just need to organize around defunding them. Uh, hearings in Calgary are on underway right now. These are very similar to the hearings that happened in Edmonton, where a lot of mostly like people of color and well-meaning kind of like, um, you know, seller allies show up and yell at the, uh, either yell at the, uh, the city councilors to, to disband, defund the police or tell like really heartrending kind of traumatic stories about their own personal experiences with police, much like, uh, how it went down in Edmonton. I expect uh, the vast majority of those stories to be summarily ignored and for some tiny piecemeal bit of of reform to happen um sros we are getting we will the school board of edmonton will vote on whether to have s whether to suspend the sro program in september that got delayed until then and we've got a story coming on sro so keep an eye out for us i'm working on something that uh, shows that some pretty fucked up uh, cops continue to be sros even after they did fucked up shit um, and finally, uh, we are currently in negotiations. I don't know how you would frame it. Contact with the Edmonton Police Service. Over the past uh, few weeks and months, we have made multiple requests to the media relations unit at the Edmonton Police Service. And sometimes they've answered us and sometimes they've foisted us off on the FOIP unit. Um, official, last week, we officially got notice that they would no longer be treating us as media. And uh, that was extremely fucked. So... We wrote back to them and we were like, we, we defeated the UCP in court when they said that we weren't media. Uh, here's our affidavit. Here's our here's the judge's decision. We're, I apparently have to apply and write a very nice letter that says we are in fact media. So we're in the process of kind of mediating that. Uh, so keep an eye on that. And uh, I think that's that's the Abolish the Police update. 
Abdul, we are done for the pod. What do you have to plug? Uh, yeah, you can um, follow me on Twitter at Socialist Raptor. Um, you can follow my podcast, which uh, is a left-wing movie podcast, uh, at Kino Lefter on Twitter, or just search Kino Lefter in your podcaster of choice. That's K-I-N-O-L-E-F-T-E-R. Um, you can find my partner. My, my partner loved your Hamilton episode, by the way. Oh, that's great. I'm very happy to hear that. The Hamilton episode was uh, a boatload of fun. It was noodles of fun, um, if you will. Uh, yeah, uh, you can find my writing you know, a lot of places. I have abdulwymalik.com for my personal essays. Um, you can Google my name, Abdul Malik Edmonton. You'll see my stuff in like Briar Patch and the Narwhal, a couple other places. Um, yeah, uh, I, I guess I have a movie coming out in late 2020 early 2021 uh, about syrian refugees that's going to be fun uh, does it have a title yet or is it still in development it's piece by chocolate it's in post-production i i wrote it funded by telefilm canada uh you know it was a fun two-year process of writing it and getting it made um and the director i think did a very good job with it so yeah like uh, hopefully hopefully we'll be back in theaters by then safely and uh Maybe we'll have put COVID behind us. Probably not, but one can dream. Uh, and you can probably go see it in the theater once it uh, finds a buyer. So yeah, um, you know, that's sort of all I have to plug. Um, but yeah, that's kind of where I'm at. Awesome. Yeah, and follow Keen Lefter. It's a very good podcast. That's, I do listen to it on my way to work quite often. But uh, enough about other people's podcasts. If you like this podcast and you want to keep hearing more like it, um, there's a few things you can do to help out. I mean, one of the biggest things is to share it with your friends, your family, your neighbors. Uh, I don't care how you do it, um, but you know whether you text to them, post, post it on your wall. Word of mouth is the best advertising. So please, if you like what we do, please share it with your with your networks. Uh, the other kind of very big thing you can do if you like this podcast and you want to continue to support this uh, this independent media project that we have going on, uh, you can donate. And you can go to theprogressreport.ca slash patrons, and you can join the 300 or so people who regularly give us money every month. Uh, thank you so much to all the people who recently joined. We had a, we had a bump of around 30, 35 patrons who recently joined, thanks to an email that we sent out. So thank you so much to them. But yeah, theprogressreport.ca slash patrons. Uh, put in your credit card number and contribute. We would really appreciate it. Um, one last note, uh, Jim. Our colleague, our boy, our absolute dude, Jim, is in the hospital right now, and he needs his he needs good vibes. He's not doing so hot. He's scheduled to go in for surgery uh, soon, and uh, our thoughts are with him. Also, uh, if you need to get a hold of me, I am on Twitter at Duncan Kinney. You can reach me by email at duncank at progressalberta.ca. Thanks so much to Cosmic Family Communist for the amazing theme. Thank you for listening, and goodbye.